Hello, and welcome to the Books That Built Me podcast, where I talk to authors about the books that inspire their writing. I'm Helen Brocklebank, and in this episode, I'm talking to Lionel Shriver, whose latest novel, The Mandibles, leapt instantly onto the bestseller list when it was published this month. Its subject is a future financial apocalypse, and her novel combines terrifying plausibility with a very funny and endlessly inventive satire. Lionel and I talked about her favourite books at the club at Café Royal on the 17th of May. I'm Helen Brocklebank and I'm the host of the Books That Built Me and I'm delighted to have with us Lionel Shriver, a writer who doesn't shy away from America's big issues. Uh, it's been said that as a writer she loves plotting, of course, straight through minefields. And of course in her 13 novels uh, she's turned her unflinching gaze onto high school shootings, the obesity crisis, American healthcare, uh, and now published last week, and already, already num- in the top 10 bestseller list with only five days of sale, not even that really, count of four days of sale, three days of sale. folks think we writers sit around thinking about the meaning of life, but really all we care about is sales. <laughs> so um, if you like it, please make your friends buy it too, and then we can get it from number nine in the top ten list to number one. I feel that this book is absolutely, uh, the, I mean, it's just an absolute triumph. I'm not going to go on it myself now, because when you read it, you'll, you'll see how it's shifted us from the kind of bleak present that... Um, we need to talk about Kevin and other Shriver books, are to an even bleaker future, a not too distant future, in which the American economy has completely collapsed. The debt mountain is eroded completely. The dollar is in free fall. And the eponymous Mandible family, once cushioned by great wealth, are now bankrupt like the rest of the country. Enough from me. Please join me in welcoming Lionel Shriver. Top 10 best-selling Lionel Shriver. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the first book, actually. A mouthful, but I expect you all to refer to me that way. <laughs> exactly. And on social media, please. Um, hashtag top 10 best-selling. Well, I mean, we, we're going to talk about um, the books that have built you in a minute, which I've carefully piled here, which I'm also probably going to knock over at any second now. But before we, before we do that, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the manifolds. So you've, you've said it's about what didn't happen in 2008. Yes, uh, I, I think that we narrowly dodged a bullet in 2008 that is still whizzing around the planet. And I'm especially concerned with debt, as well as all that, uh, all that well, it's more debt, all, that, all those rotten mortgages on the bank's balance sheets are mostly still there. And furthermore, I'm concerned about sovereign debt. So it's a, this is a novel which is about among other things, the United States defaulting on its national debt. And it doesn't have an improving effect on the country. <laughs> but it feels, I mean, it's, a, it's a, a story that feels incredibly close to home. I mean, it's a, I should say that it's a tremendously funny book, and it's very dry satire. But it's chilling, too, to think how close we are, really, to that happening. What kind of research did you do to set up the very, very realistic economic environment in which the Mandibles live? 
Well, I read a lot of economics books. But <laughs> you go pick up the, you know, the weird thing is I thought it was so I thought economics was so tedious for most of my life. And and it can be, but the new econ economics books, they're a riot. I mean, they're really exciting. They are literally about the end of the world, certainly as the as we understand it. And it it's unnerving to discover how incredibly fragile the systems are that we rely on just to go out and buy a loaf of bread or something. And currency itself is extremely fragile. And that's one of the things that I'm looking at in the book, is what, what happens when your currency goes into freefall. And it, it, has, it happens uh, around the world in many places. It's happening in Venezuela right now. I really feel sorry for them. Well, there's always there's been an internet outage as well in the, in the recent past of the book. So no, you can't pay a single bill by uh, online anymore. Everything the and the um, people are using reusing paper towels and using their water, having one shower a week. So those and that's at the beginning when things aren't really aren't really going too horribly wrong. Well, this is something of a kitchen sink novel. I threw in everything that terrifies me. <laughs> well, including with a smile. <laughs> I mean, including the value of words, actually. So it's about. The value, the family values, the value of currency, the value of value of wealth, but the value of the written word is is also something you talk about in the book. Would you tell us a little bit about what your fears are for for where where writers are going to, are in are in this imagined future? Well, I, I pretty much eliminated books. That that seemed dismal to me. Not, not not only because I like to read, but also that would leave me out of the job. It, and it comes about because mostly because of piracy. And, you know, I've been shopping for my own reviews shamelessly for the last week, and uh, I have already tripped across several sites that are free download sites for the mandibles. Really? Yeah, they're everywhere. And the, the situation with piracy is much worse than most publishers are letting you know, and they're much more freaked out than they're letting you know. Maybe they, most of all, they just don't want word to get out how easy it is to get this book for free. So you've been suckered. <laughs> but, that, but, that, but, but what, what, what people get for free is not, is not what, they don't value it, do they? And I think that's one of the, the things that I took out of the book. What's, if everything is free, it, it loses its value. So we're, uh, Willing, who's one of the really charming teenage characters in it, there's, he's, he, he doesn't trust the news anymore, does he? Because he's, we only trust television news because every uh, there's no newspapers and everything else you read about the economic crisis is put together by a selection of citizen journalists who, who could be writing anything. Well, yeah, that's one of the things that I'm really worried about is uh, the end of professional journalism. It, I, I take it to an extreme in the novel, but it's not extreme when the independent can no longer afford to put out a print edition and is now online only. And you say that when something is free, we, we don't value it as much. And that's one of the things that, that happens when a newspaper goes online, is you don't take it as seriously. And they can't afford to take themselves as seriously because they can't afford the staff to put out the, the quality journalism, to do investigative journalism, and to fact-check their own work. And I'm, I'm actually much more worried about journalism in, in the near future than I am about Literature. Literature is an indulgence. It's a luxury. But I don't feel that way about, about the newspaper I read every morning. And it's important to me that the information in it is true. 
and we are starting to slide into a universe where you can believe whatever you want to believe and inform your opinions first and then go out and looking for information you can always find backup because there's someone out there who believes who believes the same thing you do. There's also a great character in it, speaking of, of writers, who is who has been a great novelist. And she's been living away from America in Europe and she's called Molly, which is an anagram of Lionel. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the character of... Now, did you figure that out by yourself or did someone tell you? I figured it out by myself and Good then I listened to it on, and then, and, then, and then I discovered that it wasn't... You know, a feeling of triumph when you think, <laughs> I, I know about this, born in 1957, oh, similar to Lionel, Nolly, Lionel, anagram. And then, and then I, read, and I started reading reviews once, I, you know, once it came towards publication date and I wasn't. I was no longer alone in that, so... But it's but it's so it's it's a, it's a self it's a self portrait. Yes, but it's not entirely kind. <laughs> <laughs> but you are, you're not kind. You get kinder to yourself, I think, as the book goes on. Nolly, the character, is obnoxious, and opinionated, and pushy, and tactless. <laughs> <laughs> and she she's been living in Europe and. The main thing that she brings back when she returns to the United States is boxes and boxes of her own books. In every in every language. <laughs> yeah, so obviously something of a narcissist as well. You're never quite sure whether she's any good as a writer either. I figured I'd writ- I, I'm old enough and I'd written enough books that uh, I had earned the inside joke, if you will. Well, it's a it's a it's a beautiful inside joke, and I and I I'm, I'm greatly fond of it. And she's a really when you read the book, it's a really she's a really fantastic character. One of the one of the things I listening to a review that that really uh, struck me was one of the things he said when it's not an unrealistic book, it's not it's not science fiction. And then before we come on to your first book, which is science fiction, I just wanted to ask you what you think about what's going on with Trump, for example, in the in the US. I, mean, it's, I, should, I should put you on the spot and ask if yeah. you are wanting to move quickly on to a completely different subject and then you bring up Trump. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Just like, as an aside. We don't, we don't want, it's too uncomfortable to talk about him too much. But I mean, in your book, the Republican Party is finished, isn't it? There's only, there's only one, there's only, it's a single party nation in America in 2029. Yes, I have to say that, that this book already has a, a prophetic element because I predict the demise of the Republican Party, largely for demographic reasons, because the U.S. has become a third Hispanic, which is what it's likely to be at, at around 2029, and uh, the Republicans have alienated that constituency and become a tiny rump party of old white men. So. That turns out that that's what it's turning into. And uh, furthermore, I also have a, a wall between the U.S. and Mexico. But Mexico not only pays for it, but builds it. And the purpose of the wall is to keep the Americans out. <laughs> I mean, all of which you wrote for... Yeah, it's Trump all written before Trump really was any kind of serious candidate for the presidency. Well, I don't want to get too much into the horror, the horror of Trump. Let's get, let's get, let's get back into the gorgeousness of, of your, of your book choices. So the first book that you've chosen, so it, it is properly science fiction in the, it's edited by Asimov. It's a book of short stories called Tomorrow's Children. 
So tell us, tell us a bit about Tomorrow's Children. When did you, when did you come across it? Um, when I was about 10, I think I read my first science fiction book. It wouldn't, that was not the first science fiction book I read, but once I discovered Robert Heinlein, I stopped reading anything else, and I just read science fiction for about five years. And I think it still exerts an influence on me. I have to admit that this particular collection that I adored when I was in my early teens doesn't stand the test of time, especially. It's, it's one of the um, unsettling things about going back and reading favorites, especially from your teens. The, these books, they don't necessarily stand up to scrutiny. It's very disappointing. And I think that, that it reminds me of why I moved on from science fiction. I think what made me impatient was not the ideas, which were wonderful, and I have a lot of regard for science fiction writers. They have to be inventive on a level that literary writers don't have to. It's hard to come up with new inventions and whole new worlds and uh, whole new social organizations. I have great regard for uh, that level of imagination. But you know what? The writing is in that group. And that's what turned me off. Yeah. I mean, the ideas are fabulous and inventive, as you say, but not. So even when I went back to a couple of my favorite stories, I didn't think that sentence by sentence the stories were that great. But did you still like the ideas? Yes. Well, what struck me, in fact, not only about the couple of stories that I suggested you make sure and read, but another one that I remembered called The Wayward Cravat that I, I, was a, a favorite. Well, the other the other ones are called The Accountant and When, when the, the Bow Breaks. And they're all about kids. And they're all about kids who are either, well, in one instance, horrid. And in the other two instances, weird. <laughs> And I, I think that if I think back on, on a number of uh, uh, books that I liked and stories I liked and even television shows I liked, I, was al I always found it interesting to learn about kids that, that I couldn't stand. You know, the evil child in, uh, that, that crops up repeatedly in a program like Twilight Zone, one of my favorite shows. You can see the seeds of Kevin in that. I always knew that they weren't little angels. <laughs> and I also identified with characters who were children and didn't fit in. I, I, I qualified as that myself. I never understood what you were supposed to wear or what expressions you were supposed to use. And I had a tendency to get lost in my own little world. And now I make a living getting lost in my own little world. So um, it's paid off. And how, much, and how much of that feeling like not fitting, not fitting in prompted the change of name? You were called Margaret, you were Chris and Margaret Anne, weren't you? You chose your own name twice, I think. No, only, well, yes, you're remembering that I changed my name when I was eight years old. But it didn't, it didn't, it didn't nobody, nobody, nobody bought it. That was Tony, with a Y, not an I. And by 15, my, uh, my family changed cities, and I, I decided I would change it and stick with it. And it, it worked. But yeah, that was, I mean, I, it was quirky. It was, it was quirky even at the time. <laughs> Creating your own self, making yeah. a fun statement about freedom of the individual. But that's a bit, I mean, the accountant is like, we talk a little bit about the two stories that um, you suggested I, I read. The, the accountant is a child that grows up in a, 
a kind of wizarding family. We we'd associate him, we, we always think of wizards now in the context of Harry Potter, don't we? But his his parents are witches and wizards, and he doesn't want to be a witch and wizard or a wizard, he wants to be an accountant. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole gag. Now, it's, just, it's basically one gag, but it's a cute gag, and it's a, it's essentially a pre-Harry Potter as a story. It's a, it's a story, they, they want the kid to learn all his conjuring spells, and he refuses to learn the, these er, which herbs or with which spells, and he just wants to practice his double-entry bookkeeping. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's sweet. It's cute. It is, it is a, it's, a nice, it's a nice story. And When the Bow Breaks is about a couple who have a much-beloved baby, and then suddenly a group of weird extraterrestrial elders, I suppose you might call them, arrive, and he's, and he's a special... He's homo... Homo superior. Homo superior. Right. They, the, their baby is supposed to grow up to be a superhuman and to create a whole new race of uh, much more intelligent uh, human beings. And Alexander is his name. And Alexander has sent these little little creatures back to, back in time to, to his own infancy so that he can become even more developed. If he had simply got a better education when he was a child, then he would be unbelievably smart as an adult. So again, I think this captured my imagination because the child becomes such a terror. It's still a baby with a, a baby's destructiveness and a baby's selfishness and a baby's ability to tyrannize its parents. And um, as the child gets more intelligent and gets more powers, he starts transporting them to the stores because he wants candy. He, they, at a certain point, the, the <laughs> little minions from the future uh, make it so he doesn't have to sleep. It's a terrible nightmare. I mean, yeah. he becomes the, the, the tyranny of the, the selfish gene of, the, of a baby. The tyranny of a baby becomes absolutely unlivable with it's really about the yeah. fact that, you, that, that living with a baby is unbearable, and um, this is just jacking it up to a power. <laughs> a billion, and, uh, and he's got some fairly dangerous things that the elves let him play with. And I don't think it's. I don't, and nobody's going. Nobody's going to read it. So I think we can. We can spoil the. We can spoil the plot if you know. Um, they, uh, the parent, the parents allow him, find him playing with some of these tools that he's not quite advanced enough to. To be dealing with and decide not to intervene. It's a little bit like the Wicked Witch of the West. <laughs> he ends up in a little puddle. <laughs> <laughs> so what, we, what, we, what, were you, what were you like as a child? Were you, um, when you've mentioned things about not you know, being, feeling different <coughs> and not fitting in and having your own world, and, uh, and you're, a great, you're a great reader, presumably. Yes, but I, I also had a terrible temper. I used to throw um, dreadful tantrums. I really felt sorry for my... I mean, you talk about being tyrannized. I felt sorry for my parents. And I still have a terrible temper. That hasn't changed. Well, how, did they, how did they react? I got sent to my room. What did I mean, you I'm do? afraid that the, uh, the doors were, were a bit thin. <laughs> I would exhaust myself with, with fury. I... I I wanted to get my way. I still want to get my way. 
The what's changed is now I get my way. One of the few pleasures of being an adult. I love being an adult. I don't think that we celebrate it enough. You know how shite it was being a kid and having to be ordered around? I get up every day and kiss the floor that I'm a grown-up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, shall we bestow, bestow the pleasure of the, uh, of the science fiction on, on this one? There we go. One over there. We're going to have that later on. I shall throw it, because I might. I haven't got any extra special powers. I might have some of your best. Um, so why, when you were your child this to the library, did you have a lot of books at home? Were your parents readers? Oh yes. I mean, I, I grew up with, in a um, well-educated household. One of the best things I got from my parents was uh, the fact that they didn't talk down to me. That is, in terms of the words they used and the uh, sentence structure they employed, I learned from them to speak in complete sentences, in grammatical sentences. And uh, it was a huge present, because when you learn both uh, vocabulary and grammar later in life, it's not as instinctive. When you speak to children, and you are articulate, and you use a broad vocabulary, it gets inside on a, on a level that you can, you can never imitate or duplicate uh, later in life. All the words that I learn in later adulthood, I have to keep looking them up over and over again. But the, the, the words that I learned as a kid, I know permanently. On that note, let's talk about Catch-22, which is your second choice. When did you, when did you, the when did you catch, who's read Catch-22? Some show of hands there. So quite a lot of people. Does everybody, does everybody know, know it if they haven't read it? But to, do you want to tell us a little bit about what it's, what, what Catch-22 is about, and then we'll talk about what, why you've chosen it. It's set during World War II, and it's an unusual book because usually it, it's on the side of the Allies. It's American soldiers. They, they're in Italy. And uh, generally, they are the virtuous ones. We would portray them as heroes, and not in this book. This is a book of, in which the um, army is highly bureaucratic and insensible. And I think I responded to it because from the start, and this is where a lot of the tantrums came from, I have always been anti-authoritarian. I just can't stand being told what to do. And I'm very suspicious of top-heavy organizations. I don't like um, obeying rules for their own sake. I have to have it explained to me why they make sense. And in Cash 22 they never make sense. It's it's a it's about a lot about bureaucracy and about the arbitrariness of clumsy large organizations and in that sense it, it transfers to a lot of other situations outside of the army and World War II. I mean it's I mean it's tremendously funny as well, isn't it? The Catch Twenty Two of the of the title is Yosarian who's the main character in it. They, all of them, of course, want to want to try and avoid getting killed. I mean, they're in the middle of World War Two, so it's not going to be very not going to be very easy. And the only way you can get out of flying missions is to say that you're insane. Unfortunately, if you claim that you're insane, if you realise that it's insane to fly all these missions, that's an admission of sanity. So that, that's kind of the double bind that you're you're caught. Which in, is why Cash Twenty Two has entered the lexicon as a 
as an expression of, of a kind of circular logic that works in its sick way, but goes round and round. And it's interesting how, how that expression continues to be so useful. It is a funny book, and you, when you when you were it's not as funny as all that. It's funny. I think it's one. I of those... thought it was hilarious, but I read I reread that book. It was for I think it had its fiftieth anniversary not long ago, and and therefore there were there were lots of articles and you know re reviews. And there's the new there's a new foreword by Howard Jefferson I think, as well. Right, so, so. and I'm afraid this is another book that used to be hugely important to me and is disappointing. Uh, now, because it was so you you read it every year. I used to read it every year. I used to read it every year on the lead up to my birthday. I read it something like five times between the ages of thirteen and eighteen. I'm relieved that I let that ritual go. <laughs> <laughs> and when you it, came back to it, it, just wasn't funny anymore. No, it wasn't. I mean, it, occasionally it would make me smile, but there's something about the absurdist sensibility. It just doesn't crack me up anymore in the way that it, it did when I was 13. And also I get frustrated because it's very poorly structured. It's totally episodic. It doesn't have a nice overarching plot. And uh, also the scenes that are much more serious moved me more when I was younger because it's also an anti-war book. And I responded strongly to that because when I read it, it was during the Vietnam War in the United States. And I was uh, fiercely opposed to that war, especially since I had an older brother who was on his way to qualifying for the draft and uh, barely missed getting drafted. So I took it personally, as I should have. But it, it, those scenes just don't do it for me anymore. You know, the book served its purpose. I got a lot out of it. And the biggest thing I got out of it, and this I, I took with me, was that it did amuse me, and it was the first adult book I had ever read that was funny. And I had I don't think I had ever registered before that novels for grown-ups don't always have to be serious. And it's partly because of Catch-22 that my books are bearable today. <laughs> <laughs> the black humor CPUs. I think you said something, I read you said somewhere that um, if we're literature a somber affair, I've never become a novelist. So we could say that this is this is your trigger book. It's yes. the book that made you think, right, I can, I can do it like that. So who hasn't read, who's not been put off us going, it was very funny, there's not, there you go. Do you want to, shall I put it over here and um, I'm not going to do my lobbing again. But then you come to, we come to Jude the Obscure, which um, which nobody could describe The anti-funny book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the anti-funny book. <laughs> but, but, you, but you cut your literary teeth on Hardy. Yeah, I used to love Hardy. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the flip side. I, I always liked books that were depressing. <laughs> I was big on Dostoevsky. Um, how, how old are this? This kind of late teenage when yes, roundabout when I gave up science fiction at fifteen, I dedicated myself to reading classics. I was quite systematic, <laughs> and especially in the summer, I would put together a reading list and plow through my reading list. I was big on uh, William Faulkner. That's not exactly a That's laugh riot either. 
I, I don't know what it w was, but it was I had an appetite for the sorrowful. I, 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 th I think I just like the sensation. You know what I mean? It's the same thing, same reason, this may seem a stretch, uh, the same reason that I like really spicy food. <laughs> oh, it's it made me feel something, and I liked feeling something. And it, uh, it, it's the, the sensation of sorrow in a book is more intense than joy. It's, it's, it's very difficult to get across joy, but it, it's a lot easier to manipulate the reader into feeling bad. And I like being manipulated, and I like the feeling bad. And I, I, and I, I liked that sorrow at once removed, which is, you know, that's what m makes it possible to read these books and not kill yourself, right? Because it isn't happening to you really. And you, you can get up and, you know, do the laundry. You, you know, it's, someone dies, it isn't your brother. Or, you know, in this case, uh, you know, it doesn't happen to be your, your, all your three children who've been, two of whom have been murdered by the, the other, the older one who promptly then hanged himself. Reading a little note. Ugh. Because we were too many. Many. M-E-N-N-Y. <laughs> That's the line I always remember from that book. But it, as for Jude, Jude the Obscure in particular, I think I responded to that novel partly because it's very anti-religion and it's suspicious of formal education. And I've, I've, all, I've had, I've been chary about education, which I always found unsatisfying and also very hostile to religion most of my life. And it's about a, a man who idolizes formal education and has all these religious yearnings, but uh, the institutional response to these yearnings and to that idolatry is, is constantly uh, throwing it back in his face. I mean, his, his life is miserable, he never gets anywhere, uh, the love of his life ends up being turned, turning against him because she herself becomes very religious and feels guilty about the fact they're not married. And so it's a, it's a book that's also suspicious of uh, traditional morality and all the rules of, regarding sex and romance. And those rules make everyone miserable in this book. And since I was part of a generation that finally didn't get hysterical about the fact that you had to stay a virgin before, until you got married. I responded to that also, to that. So it's, it's in a way, it's, a, it's also a very anti-authoritarian book. I mean, how much of a role do you, I mean, how much of a role does do books play in being, in allowing you to rehearse those kind of opinions and experiences? I mean, both the sadness and that um, sense that it's possible to be, to not, to not conform, to not obey what society wants to do. And due to, Jude doesn't do what society wants wants him to. He doesn't succeed, but he's also not he's not punished for it in the same way as a as a as I don't know. Well, he dies. Yeah, but he's. But, no, I should I should qualify that he is. I mean, he he gets no. He has an unremittingly tragic existence, but he's. Um, a, you know, more one of the more conventional Victorian novelists would come out of that saying, right, actually, what he should have done was be much more, he should have paid a more conventional, had a more conventional existence, he should have towed the line, he shouldn't have tried to step out of his class, he shouldn't just try to step out of his, he shouldn't have tried to educate himself. I mean, he's a, he's a boy from a, from a 
farming background. He, you know, he's, he's at the opening scene as he's kind of feeding, earning a few shillings or not very well, earning a few, maybe a few pence by uh, scaring rooks. So he's, um, but he wants, he wants to go to the university. He wants to step outside his class. Well, it's a book of, about of struggle and, and aspiration and frustration, and I think that those are themes that young people naturally respond to. You know, when you're in your teens, early 20s, you're looking at the rest of your life, it intimidates you, you're afraid of failure, you have all these notions that you would like to pursue, some ideas of what kind of future you might like, but you're underconfident about your ability to realize those ambitions. And so I, I, I think I, I responded to a story about someone who struggles so hard and yet is constantly thwarted. And, you know, that, that is the sensation of being young. It's, yeah, absolutely, uh, to be thwarted. And, yeah. You know, not to be able to realize yourself, not to have that freedom. But what I find really interesting, though, is you, you read... You Unfortunately read, for a lot of us, it's also the, what happens in adulthood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, that's, well, that's kind of... Well, I, was, I found this book too thwarted. I mean, I read it and I found the fact that he always... You know, he comes... Though it's unremittingly miserable, he, he finds the love of his life and yet they can't be together. You know, the children are killed. I mean, just, you know, and the, the love of his life goes off, you say... To, to be religious, you know, to be religious, he doesn't get to be the university success that he wants to be. All those things, and I, you, you go. This, you know, it's about being thwarted. So I decided not to be thwarted, and I became determined and and pressed on and and thought I'm going to be able to do my own thing. And I just went. I'm sorry, I'm thwarted, and Hardy's now broken. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, broken. I don't know. Look, Hardy makes for really good movies, so you have to have an appetite for Hardy. He is a big downer. But there have been some great films made from his books, and they don't last nearly as long. So <laughs> if you don't think you can take it, the, go to film four. Have you, read, have, you read Hardy, have you read Hardy since? I mean, I had a massive Hardy jag when I was in my late teens. I went through a jag of reading just all of them. Yeah, and I've and come back from subsequently, and some work and some don't, and I've wondered whether you, whether you have. Generally, no. I think that's an appetite that has been satisfied. <laughs> now I just read my books. <laughs> your, book, your books are dark, but they're also funny. So they're also dry, which we can't say about. It is a great. It is a great book. Can it, would anybody like a depressing yet great book? Nobody. And we go. I've just I found I found somebody who's, who, without any caveating, went right. That's my book. This is this is my this is this is my copy of Judy the Obscure from when I was at university. I'm sorry, it's a bit nibbled. I don't know what happened to it, but um, it's you can see it. It's, it has the signs of struggle in every page. But the it's been thrown off across the room a while. <laughs> it falls open at the uh, the really sad bits as well, because actually, like you, I was a, I was a teenage a goth before goths existed, so I like to sit in my room and reading really bad poetry, and write, sorry, writing really bad poetry, reading good poetry and good novels and trying to educate myself. But I didn't read, I'll give this to you later, I didn't, I didn't ever come across Mr and Mrs Bridge, which is actually two separate novels are published in this. I, so I've never heard of it, you, and I then later decided, realised that you'd read, you'd written, sorry, a, an introduction to Mr Bridge. Yeah. Which I wish I had read because it would have been the most brilliant crib. 
but I didn't. But I read, I read both books. Tell us about this. Uh, I would say this is, first off, we're now through with the, the books that I'm not sure I would want to go back to. <laughs> the ones that are left are, are great books. Okay, and the Evan S. Connell book. There are two, there, it's actually, it, it is, it's two books. And I love it conceptually, and I love the execution. It's about a marriage, and it's not about a marriage that is, to look at it, exceptional, which is what's so great about it. It's trying to write about a regular marriage with its quiet little difficulties. And uh, Mrs. Bridge is written from the wife's point of view, and Mr. Bridge is written from the husband's. And you visit many of the same events in this couple's life, but from very different perspectives. It's in some ways the fictional version of, what is that, the name of that book? The Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. It's like that. And it's, it's very tender. And the portrayal of the, the wife, it, it, it is era-specific. It's set in the 30s. So she's not, you know, what we would call liberated. It's, a, it's, she is a little oppressed by her husband, but it's, it's still, it's not a bad marriage. And likewise, you know, the, the man is a little stoic and racist and has a little bit of a problem with Jews and is clearly sexist and a little sexually repressed. But it's all done with so, such care that you, you know, you see the whole person. And, in, and maybe more importantly, between the two books, you see the whole marriage. The marriage itself is almost like a character. And I, I loved the, um, I, I loved the way he got at their feelings for each other and the articulated the different ways they experienced their lives together. It's written in little vignettes as well. It's very episodic. It's the little flashes of the of the ordinariness of their of their lives. It's kind of one of those books that shows you don't need a really big canvas to or a big backdrop to explore some very big big thoughts. What what do you think what do you think this book has meant to you as a writer. Well, I mean, I can see how Catch-22, the black humour of that has seeped into your books, the contrariness or kind of coming up against challenge of authority in um, things like Judy Obscure. What, 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 is, what is it about Mr. Mrs. Bridge that does it for you as a writer, not just as a reader? Well, structurally, I have employed the same device in a way because uh, there's, a, there's a sense in which Mr. Bridge and Mrs. Bridge or two parallel universes, right? Maybe you can even think of any couple's coexistence as two parallel universes. And I use the, the structure of the parallel universe in my eighth novel, The Post-Birthday World. It's not uh, the man and the woman, but it's a woman having the experience of being with two different men side by side and experiencing her life with one man and then another, and the chapters go back and forth. So she goes through this, many of the same experiences, but they're completely different depending on who's on her arm. And I, I, I think that the uh, Evan S. Connell influenced my, my choice of that form. And he's, I mean, he 
he's a when he he writes this in the fifties, doesn't he? And he's a he's a contemporary of of Richard Yates, who we will go on and talk about. But mm-hmm. it's set in the thirties, and and yet he's Mrs. Bridges. So he was in, in a way writing about his parents' generation. And you can't you can't really see him in the book at all. I mean, he's not he's a very subtle. There's no presence of the author of the author in that. You all you just that's well observed. You know, it's interesting because it's one of the things that I say in my introduction to Mr. Bridge is that I admire the author in this. I'm not always that good about this. In fact, after all, the my new novel not only has a lot of the intrusion of authorial opinion, but the author herself walks the page <laughs> as an old lady in a pain in the ass. Um, but there's there's a lot of discipline to writing a book where the author is not present, and so that you 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 are only with the character, and there's a purity to that that you don't sense the author on the page at all, and that it, it it becomes this there's this there's a self-effacement and a modesty to that kind of writing that I really admire, and that therefore what what happens is the reader isn't aware of the author at all and sees through the prose, sees through the novel, in fact, to the, straight to the character. And the, the, that kind of clear-sightedness and not getting in the way, you know, n- not saying, look at me, isn't that a great sentence? <laughs> I really admire that. It's, true, it's beautifully unshowy writing, isn't it? You just, you feel the characters and that's, and that and their response, and that's kind of it. And particularly Mrs. Bridge, I mean, she's a very, she's, she's, lone, she's lonely, isn't she? I mean, she's a, on the surface, a very fulfilled life, you know, in the conventional kind of apple pie American sense. But yeah, she's lonely. Yes, it's that kind of, uh, that kind of loneliness that Betty Friedan later identified, of uh, the, the dissatisfied housewife, who has everything, and, um, and the, the, the couple is well. They're not rich, but you know, they're 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 clearly uh, they lack for little, and yet they they lack for a great great deal. She feels that sense of emptiness that became a big issue in the women's liberation movement of my youth. But she only raises it once, doesn't she? She kind of she says something to Mister Bridge when he comes back about her feeling, particularly as the children get older, that you know she's not. He's not a purpose, and he just says, "I've put some lubricant in the car." I mean, that's the end of the conversation. So, I've taken care of you. I've kind of provided for you. But it's—I think it's an—it's a really interesting contrast with to Revolutionary Road, which we'll talk about in a minute, which is written on the other side of the war, mm. or kind of set on the other side of the war. Shall we? Shall we? Um, sure. Shall we give this to somebody very, very, very? Ah, there you go. Seeing you at the back, both hands up. It is. It's really, it's really wonderful. It's, um, I hadn't read it before and I absolutely loved every minute of it. I mean, but particularly for that, the kind of the absence of the awful there, the quietness of it, and yet the depth of emotion in a very, very quiet book. That's going to see me off, see me off to school. Um, but Revolution, but Revolutionary Road is not, it's not like that at all. So when did you, when did you first read Revolutionary Road? It's, it's a book, is it just, is anybody, who's, Who's read it or who's seen the film? It's a very, very good film with um, Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Kate Winslet. Is it a Sam Mendes film? Yes. 
I think I read it first in the 1980s, and I went on to read everything of Richard Yates I could get my hands on, um, and I would consider him a serious adult influence. And I think his work and my work have a lot in common. There's a lot wrong with his characters. You're aware of the fact that they they are flawed, they they often make self-destructive decisions, uh, but they seem real. And partly because they're flawed and they make self-destructive decisions because real people do that. And there's a there's a clear-sightedness to the to the authorial perspective on these people. At the same time, you never feel that he's precisely making fun of them. There's also a, an authorial kindness. And because these people seem sympathetic. And I, even as sometimes they're also seeming pathetic. I mean, the, the, the couple in Revolutionary Road you know, they're, they're always talking about they want to go to France. They're Americans, and they have a lot of pretensions about themselves. They, they think they're above um, their neighbors. They feel extraordinary. In fact, they have a lot in common with Eva in We Need to Talk About Kevin. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that that portrait, I don't know whether I was, I, I wouldn't say that I was copying exactly, but it, it was, he was making the same observation that I make through Eva, which is there's a certain kind of American who believes that they're they're better than other Americans. They don't really belong in this tawdry, you know, tacky, crass country. They should be in Europe, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's very it's quite matter. It's very it's kind of Bobryish as well, isn't it? Revolutionary Radio. So. About that, that kind of self-delusion is, is yeah. yes, it strikes very much the, a, a similar note. Uh, and, and I like the way that creates a triangle between the, the reader, the character, and the writer, because the reader is outside saying, these people are kind of full of shit. But, the, but you, and, you and the writer are together. It's not... And it's much more complicated than just you and the writer are ganging up on the characters and saying, these people are full of shit. You're being asked to both judge and sympathy, sympathize at the same time, which is very complicated. It's emotionally complicated. And that invites the kind of relationship to the character that we have to real people all the time. Because, you know, people in our family, our friends, we have differences with him, them, and just because we care for them doesn't mean we can't see them and what is wrong with them and when they're talking rubbish. So the author is inviting you to look at these people and and it's, it becomes very voyeuristic and intimate and, and disturbing, but also kind of thrilling. This, what's interesting is what he does with um, with the character of Frank. So there's, there's, there's Frank and Frank and April, who are the, the young married couple with children. They're living in suburbia, as he said. They feel that they're much much better. Then they start to plan this this trip to to France. They're going to leave everything, sell everything, take the children, and, and be in France. So Frank can find himself and go away from his dead end job in kind of public relations in a, a Knox, kind of an IBM company. But he 
what, what I love about And you just know they're not ever going to go. <laughs> and even if they did go, it would be a disaster. And that's, that's part of the complication. The, the reader is out there saying, oh, come on, get a grip. You know, let, let it go. You're never going to go to, to France. He set, how, does he, how does he set up that conspiracy, which, which is right from the word go, between the reader and the author about, about what, you, what you know about how these people, how deluded these people are about, about their ambitions? Well, it's also kind of, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. And it's like you know Jude is never going to get to Christminster and, and become an Oxford Don. It's very similar. It is very similar. It's really interesting reading it side by side. Yeah. And the way that you know, the, the children as well have kind of have curtailed their ambition too, or can they, they project a, a curtailment of their wants onto, or their dreams onto the, onto the having of children. It's kind of not really that, is it? He does a, what I liked about it, not having read it before and having not read any, any Yates, was he, he allows you inside Frank's head. And Frank says, well, what, what I would say to her, he rehearses conversation he's going to go home that evening and have with his wife, April. And yet, and yet he doesn't. I mean, from the word, go opens with a, she's, she's aspirations to be an actress, and they have this terrible, terrible suburban acting troupe. And the play goes And you get the impression she's not a very good actress. I mean, it's really, it's very, you cringe with it, don't you? And he says... He's, he's working out what he can say to his wife. It's about 20, 15 pages in. What he can say to his wife in the in the green room, and he imagines he could like it was you were wonderful, darling, and then and then can't quite bring it. Can't bring himself to say that. So it's internal conversation going all the time. I think that was what I kind of walked out about it. So one of the things that was interesting to me was to reread this book, and by the way, it does reread great. Um right before the film came out. And I discovered that when I went to see the film, because it was so fresh in my mind, that that film, every single line in that film is from the book. It's quite extraordinary. One of those rare adaptations that was almost slavishly faithful. And so, but it's one of the reasons it's so good. Because Yeats writes wonderful dialogue. And as long as they were able to paste it together in this way, uh, it works. So, uh, so if you don't ever get around to reading it, at least you can be sure that if you see the film, it is Richard Yates. But you, and, but you should, but you should read it because it's really the writing's great. The writing is amazing, and it's although it is, it is a great, it is a very tragic book. It's immensely moving, and and it's not, it doesn't, it's not a, it doesn't take long to read either. It's a quick, it's a quick and fulfilling read. I want to actually want to come back to talking about the uh, the film film adaptations because it's interesting you say that the dialogue was very very close in this to Yeats's own dialogue. How was that when with how did you find the experience of the film of Winnie's talk about Kevin? Uh, the woman who directed that film was not naturally a writer. She's got a very visual sensibility, and generally that should be a good combination. And when she lifted my dialogue wholesale, it was a good combination. I think the the points at which the, the film flags are when she wrote the dialogue and it just it goes completely flat. When she used her visual sensibility and her brilliant casting, because the casting in that film is perfect, and used my dialogue, the, that, that film really sang. 
So I, I just wish you'd done it a little more. I noticed that in the trailer, those were the scenes they used exclusively, were the ones when she had lifted my dialogue word for word, directed it with these wonderful actors, and then it really took off. And I'm already hearing uh, people talk about how filmable the mandibles is. Have you, um, has anybody? Well, the rights are still available, so let's just keep this, <laughs> keep talking it up. Yes. Right, on Twitter, everybody go, this is going to make an amazing film. It would make an amazing film. So beautiful, heartbreaking, revolutionary road. I promise to make sure I look around the room, okay. By the way, yes, we now know about this book because of, especially because of the film, right? renewed interest in Richard Yates. But I want to recommend really all of his books. They are just great. Random House put out one of those match sets. Get all those red spines. <laughs> He's been underappreciated, uh, out of print for many years, most of his books. I'm really glad to see them back in print. And uh, we shouldn't allow this author to disappear because that's what happens when you don't keep reading them and passing them on to your kids and saying, read this. Uh, let's keep Richard Yates alive. It's a tremendously important chronicle, I think, of a, of a, mo of a moment in the 1950s. If anybody liked Madman, then it will really resonate. So talk it up on Twitter. Let it have, make, give it a stoner moment. If anybody reads stoner? What else have I just said? Wait, so I, before, I, before we go on to Gorgeous Eat of Water. Uh, so that's the first Yates I've read. What should I read? What should I read now? Let's see, the Easter Parade is good. I'd have to see the beginning. Do we read? Oh, well, maybe, maybe, maybe we should take yeah. that offline, as they say. Right. Uh, all of them. Uh, they're all good. A bit like Edith Horton, actually. All good. All good. The Age of the age of Innocence. I know this is a really important book to you, and also a great film adaptation as well, speaking of that. Who has read or seen the Scorsese film? Does everybody know the story? Should we say a little bit about the the story of the book, and then we and then we can do a deep dive into why it's your why it's the book that's built you most, I guess. Well, it's about a very uh, you know you get the impression that he's a very good man, and tries to be true to his marriage. He marries a a lovely girl. You know, there's nothing wrong with him. He does what society wants him to do. That's he? right. And then ends up uh, falling in love with a fallen woman who is in flight from her own marriage. That one really didn't work out. And no one approves of her because you're just not supposed to do that. Uh, you're not supposed to leave your husband, prince whatever. You're supposed to suck it, suck it up no matter how abusive or horrible the husband is. you just got to suck it up and grit your teeth and stay on. Otherwise, you're... You're no one in society. And so the protagonist is in this unbearable situation of being torn between this really sweet wife, really just a good person, and kind and gentle and boring, <laughs> and this sexy, intelligent, much more interesting woman with a difficult past. And, uh, you know, what does he do? If you haven't read it, I'm not going to ruin it for you. It's what happens. Although, if you know, if you've got my sensibility by now, you know it doesn't end well. <laughs> I don't get the impression that Edith Wharton in general is read enough over here. Did you study her in school? 
No. She's Did not you study really her in university? No, she's not. Yeah. She's not really. She's not, I mean, I think a little bit more now. So if you were doing a, a world literature or, or a general uh, literature in English course, she wouldn't necessarily show up. You not might not get here. a bit of hassle. Not here, but in America, chefs that you do. Um, but this is, I mean, it's a very, this is bad. There are wealthy families, wealthy New York society, isn't it? Which I guess has got parallels to the mandibles. They're a very conforming society. Or it's a, it's a society which well, is Well, Ruth Wharton wrote a lot about uh, people who are from that, that milieu. You know, uh, Fifth Avenue used to be lined with these enormous houses in Manhattan. And sh she circulated in that society, so it makes sense that she would write about it. But she wrote a lot about people coming up against uh, social convention, and especially women coming up against social convention and, and having to make big sacrifices in order to, to follow the rules. In this case, this, the sacrifice is male in House of Mirth, which is also great. I mean, I have to say that House of Mirth and, and Age and Innocence are neck and neck for me as, as to which is her, her very best books. But she is interested in that um, whether or not you're going to play by the rules. And if you're not going to play by the rules, what are you going to pay for it? And in that world, if you didn't pay, play by the rules, you paid a, a very high price indeed. She was in some ways uh, an early feminist, though I don't, you know, she wouldn't have described herself that way, wouldn't have had the, the vocabulary, but certainly in, in, in terms of who she was, you know, she was every bit the, the, the level of writer as someone like Henry James. They were, they were friends, actually they? friends. But you know, Henry James would have been much um, better thought of and more influential. That said, for a woman at, her, at the beginning of the 20th century to still be getting into print and, and having people have regard for her work was an enormous achievement. Well, she's, I mean, she's very well regarded in her lifetime, isn't she? I mean, this yes, she was, it wasn't just discovered later. I mean, she, she made a real impact. This and was a Pulitzer Prize in 1921. So yeah, so she was, a, she was a successful writer, and that was not easy at that time. What really bowled me over when I first discovered her, and I didn't read her till the uh, 1990s, was the quality of the prose. It's beautiful, it's elegant, but it's not showy. You know the difference? I don't like prose that is really in your face. It's using a very complicated structure and, and language that it's, I don't like flowery. I don't like many, many, many words when only a few would do. It doesn't have to be super pared down in Hemingway all the time, it's not that strict. But most of all, I like writing that is both pleasing in its form, but also takes you to what it's saying. So that what it's about is what it's saying. What makes it good writing is that it's saying something interesting or pertinent, that it's well observed, that it's about something. The only reason writing is really important is that it says something. And she had so much insight into the, what makes people tick, and in that way that transcends era, right? Because we haven't changed that much. We just don't. We're always the same. And so it's completely accessible. And the style she uses 
is not only elegant, but it's interestingly timeless because it doesn't seem fusty. Here she's writing 100 years ago, and yet it seems really quite fresh and modern. It's got that, that clarity and brightness and immediacy that we expect in modern prose. And it, it, so there's no fustiness. The convention, social conventions may, may be different, but the, the writing is very, very solid and clear, and, and you could pick it up, and I don't think you would know that that writing was 100 years old unless somebody told you. So that, I, that is a real achievement. And that, I mean, that's very like Cornwall and also Yeats, isn't it? That it, does, it doesn't get in the way of the, of the reader. It allows the reader, it's very, and actually your books too, you allow the reader to get into the, into the text, to enjoy the book without having, having to be, you know, have the author in the way. I mean, that sense that Cornwall does so well of stepping back from the, from the action, just letting it breathe, right, is a much, much, much easier said than done. Well, I think Wharton is better than Henry James. I like Wharton better than Henry James, so I would say I would. I don't know enough about these things to be able to say certainly not good enough in American literature to have an opinion. But actually, this is really it's a really it's a really lovely book. What I was interested in, actually wanted to pick up on before we move on to questions on conscious of time is that what you were saying about her, her not considering herself to be a feminist, and yet she's very very involved with the role, the role of women, but. So, I mean, Sue Brighthead in Hardy is also somebody that doesn't want to conform. And Mrs. Mrs. Bridge is aware of her position in society, but very, you're very conscious of the restrictions that are put upon her as a woman in the 30s. And April in Revolutionary Road. Also, when all, all of the books that you've chosen really articulate a sense of... Um, I hadn't thought about that, but how you're society, right. Yeah, how, how society traps, traps women. Is that are we still are we still are we still trapped? Are we still struggling with our emancipation? Oh, doubtless. It's a big change for that 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 women have enacted, and it it's not over yet. But I I do think that we should continue to celebrate how far we've come. It's a far better world than it used to be. You know, when Edith Wharton was was writing, it had barely become possible to get divorced, and yet it was still not socially acceptable. It was a scandal to get divorced. And now it's a scandal to stay married if you're unhappy. Now that's improvement, right? So one of the things that reading um, Edith Wharton is good for is to appreciate how much better things are now than they were. It used to be the only way that you could secure not just your position in society, but a living was to marry the right person. That's really selling your soul, selling your life for a crust of bread. And we don't have to do that anymore. And I think that's great. I, I hear, hear. I mean, is it, is it, is it, I suppose the wider theme which pulls us back into mandibles is about a, a, the, quest for, the quest for freedom of the individual. And that, that's a theme that runs through every Which is actually a big theme in Cash 22. And I think that's one of the things that I responded to in Catch-22. It's one of the only books in the Western canon that celebrates a soldier on the Allies' side going AWOL. And it's a gesture of 
drive toward freedom and, and liberation. And I think that, that that is a kind of regular theme through all the books that have meant something to me, is that journey toward release, the throwing off the restrictions that other people put on you. In other words, I'm just very willful. Well, let's, let's have a big round of applause for willfulness then. I just want to say a really big thank you to the Club of Café Royal for hosting us, to Bollinger for the lovely champagne, to Prestat for the chocolate, to Papier for the little notes that are in the goodie bag, but above all, an enormous thank you to Lyle. I love this book. I'd love talking to you. Thank you very much. Massive round of applause. Thank you, thank you to Lyle Shriver, to the Club at Café Royal, and to the books that built me sponsors, Champagne Bollinger, Tatler and Prestat Chocolate. You can find out more about the books that built me on the website, thebookthatbuiltme.co.uk, or by following us on Facebook, Facebook backslash thebookthatbuiltme. Thank you.